pick up where we left off uh, last Sabbath. We had a different subject matter entirely on the Day of Atonement, and I think I certainly saw some things there that I had never really put together before uh, about the spiritual meaning of some things that are attached to uh, the Day of Atonement, like Jubilee. It's been mentioned that Jubilee was announced then, but not the whole system that is tied to Jubilee and is therefore tied to atonement. So I think some important understanding of the spiritual meanings of some things in the Bible that we have just seen as a rule or as a financial thing but did not understand the spiritual significance of. In any case, we'll move from that back to Isaiah. You will recall last Sabbath we went through the first parts of Isaiah. And uh, I want to go back just for a moment and comment uh, in Isaiah 1. I think I kind of skipped over it. It wasn't the point the other day, and it isn't really the point today. But since the feast is coming up in only a couple of days, uh, let's look at Isaiah 1, verse 12. He says, When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Why are you coming here? Who asked you to come? What's the purpose? What's the point? And we're going to see as we read down that he did not like what was going on. So I think what he's saying here is not, I didn't command the feasts. He commanded the feasts very clearly. But they were to be done at a certain place, and they were to be done in a certain manner. And what they were doing was not that. Therefore, he was upset, and he says, who, to, who told you to come here and do this? This isn't what I commanded you to do. This is what you must have gotten instruction for somewhere else. And then he says, it's all in vain, verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot handle or deal with. Don't want anything to do with them. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. I think that should be very instructive for the church of God today. We have kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Did we do it in the way that God wanted? Now, the church being scattered around the world, perhaps in some respects, if the way was too far, it was okay to do it near home or gather near home. Uh, I can see why God may have allowed that in worldwide. And yet this whole context is talking about the church here at the end. And the church pretty well set God's name where they wanted it, not where he put it. And we drifted more and more from places like Squaw Valley, where it was out in the mountains, or Big Sandy, out of the country, to places where the entertainment of man resides. Uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach, or Anaheim, uh, Disney World in Orlando, uh, places like that 
Branson, Missouri. I could go on and on. Cruise ships. Where the main thing is entertainment and let's all go have fun. This is our vacation as opposed to God's Feast of Tabernacles. Where one day, Zechariah 14, 4, yeah, is it 4? No, it's not 4. On down, further than that. Into the chapter. But they will come up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. The whole purpose of the feast is to worship the King. Now, we are told to take our second tithe and enjoy what we might want to eat and to drink. It's there for lodging as well. Christ stayed in the barn because there was no room at the inn. Well, I say he stayed there. His parents stayed there. He was born there. That thought hit me the other day. We usually think of Jesus being born in the manger. And you picture a, a nice place there with him maybe laying in a cow feed stall or something with all nice hay around him is the way they picture it. They do not show you the ground wherein lay the manure of sheep, goats, cows, donkeys, and horses probably. The Savior of the world was born in the humblest of places out in the manure. And I think that means something. But he is risen on high today, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and shall be over the face of the earth. So this is about him, and it's about us, having gone through atonement and married our husband, turning then to help the world. So the focus is not going to be on ourselves having fun. The focus is going to be on delivering a people around the world that has been through famine and pestilence and war, privation and loss, who are going to be befuddled and confused, frustrated, hungry, tattered and torn. And we are to go to the feast to worship He who can fix the problem and to rejoice and that symbolically we have just been made the wife, the queen of the king of kings. And we are there to serve the world, to have the kingdom of God spread around the world. The play places of this world will have gone away. They will no longer exist. You could no longer have the feast there. It will be kept as it is written. All peoples, I suspect the continents will have gone back together at that time, and all peoples will come to Jerusalem to keep the feast, as it is written. So we need to bear that in mind when we go to keep the feast. I do believe this is the first time in at least probably 1,700 years that the feast has been kept at the true original Jerusalem. And somehow, some way, God has called us to come do that in spite of ourselves. It is a, I think, gigantic, monumental affair. And we need to bear that in mind as we be go before God. Even if it weren't that, we still need to bear in mind why we're going there. And that God has not been happy. He has scattered the church. 
He has scattered the feasts. There are no longer 15, 20,000, 10,000 people at feast sites. They are so greatly diminished, it's almost unbelievable. And part of it was the way we were keeping the feast. We are primarily going there to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. That's not correction. That's positive teaching. That is what we are to do. In other words, go with the idea of pleasing God. Why do we go to the feast? I want him to be pleased with the feast. I want him to be pleased with when it is, calendar-wise. I want him to be pleased with where it is, geographically. And I want him to be pleased with how we conduct ourselves there. Yes, it's a time of food and drink, alcoholic drink. But bear in mind, it is not a place for drunkenness either. Liberty within the law. Liberty within bounds. And we must be careful. We joked years ago about the Feast of Booze and people having their motel uh, dressers lined with bottles and even people in the world who came to clean the rooms had a lot to say about all the bottles and cans in the rooms of our people. And it was a derisive type of thing. Now, we understood, and we can accept that persecution, but let's be careful with our consumption. Let's be careful with our tongues. Let's be sure that we please God in what we do. So that at the end of this Feast of Tabernacles, God can smile and say, I am pleased with what I saw there. I am pleased with the attitude that people came with and exhibited throughout. There was no negativity. There was no gossip and scurrilous backbiting. There was happiness and joy and peace. How can we come before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and act as carnal human beings? There is a challenge here. Because to one degree or another, we're carnal human beings, face it. So we have to be on our guard to be sure that we keep it in the way that God would want. I'm not, again, saying this is a sermonette to dress us down. I'm saying God says he has been displeased with what has been going on. And we have an incredible opportunity to do it differently. To react spiritually instead of carnally. And to control ourselves. Yes, it's a time to enjoy food and drink in a uh, perhaps more abundant way than we might day to day. But as somebody commented, Americans don't know the difference between the feast and any other day, generally speaking, because Americans have been used to eating pretty much whatever they want any time they want it. So going to the feast, they have the same thing, just more of it. Uh, we have been in a land of plenty. Now, you might get steak more at the feast or something that you really enjoy that's a little more expensive, but, but we have not lacked for an abundance of food, let's face it, or let's look in the mirror, me included. I know, then the skinny ones get self-righteous. But, uh, no, I'm saying there's plenty here uh, in this land. 
So we can have more, but let us be careful. Uh, sickness can come as a result of too much. So any time, uh, whether it be feast or not. But again, see, the meaning of the feast. Why would God have us have, why does he emphasize it so much at the Feast of Tabernacles, perhaps as opposed to the other feasts? Because it pictures a time when a starving world who have been dying by the millions, billions of starvation and war are going to enter a time when there is plenty. And that's why God stresses that we have plenty to eat and plenty to drink at the feast, that we have everything we need. And he even has us stay in temporary dwellings, not our own homes, so that we might understand the displacement that has gone on with the world. How they have been taken out of their homes and taken captive and starved and killed. And they will be removed from there in that temporary situation and come to have homes in their own land once again, back wherever they belong, and have peace, plenty, and prosperity. So there's a great deal of meaning to attach to the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm giving a little mini-sermon here at the head. I didn't mean to say this much, but I got started, and that's the way it goes. Uh, I just wanted to say, let's be sure God is pleased. So if we will put our effort in that direction, I'm sure we'll do a better job than if we didn't and just went up there, oh, I'm just here to keep the feast. Well, think about why you're there to keep the feast. Understand that. And then maybe we'll do a better job of pleasing our God. So that's, that's enough of that. Let's go back then to where we were. Uh, the essence of it was that Isaiah was to be a voice to the people and to know that their eyes would be shut and their ears closed and so on and so forth. But... He questioned how long, and he said, until this destruction comes and the cities be uninhabited, uh, people taken into captivity, and yet a tenth will return, a remnant, both of the church first and of the land of Israel later. It's both a church and a national uh, prophecy here, a duality. Then in chapter 7, I found it very interesting, and I commented on it last time, that it's speaking here of a conspiracy between the leader of Ephraim and Syria against Judah and commented on how we have at the leadership of our nation today a man who is prone to like the Muslims better than Judah by far and has shown that by things said and by things done in the last several years, especially lately. Now, I think we have proved long since, years ago, that this nation is Ephraim, not Manasseh. Manasseh, Britain, may go down at the same time we do. But this is the land, Ephraim. Ephraim means, or the first part means fruitful, and the em at the end is two or double. And God promised Ephraim double blessing, double fruitfulness what the word, the term, the name means. And this land is blessed above all. So we'll not go into all of that, but just a comment so that we recognize that 
This is an international prophecy dealing with Syria, which might represent more than one Arabic nation, I do not know. But currently we do have a fight going on in Syria, and Syria has its defenders, and yet the United States has even admitted that we are pouring millions of dollars into the rebel cause there to take down uh, Assad, the leader of, of, of Syria, not Assyria. So we have today the leader of Ephraim who is funding a, a coup in the land of Syria by the rebels that are there. And the Arab world and the leader of Ephraim is very much involved in the destruction of Judah. Now, I'm not saying that based on news reports. I'm saying that based on Isaiah 7. It's a prophecy for now. Now, the news reports will back that up, and ultimately, if they haven't yet, they're going to prove that to be the case. But it says within 65 years from a certain date, and I think perhaps that date, not conclusively, but perhaps, was the beginning of the nation of what we call Israel today on May 15th of 1948. May 15th of 2013 would be 65 years later. And if that is the date that God started to count, then I would think that Ephraim, this land, will be broken and it be not a people by that time. Maybe sooner than that, but within, it says, 65 years. I don't know that that's the day to use, but it's got to be getting close based on what you see happening, the leaves coming on the trees in the world. Now, that's on the international scene. Then when you draw it down, he says that's a sign that Ephraim would be destroyed, okay? That's speaking of the nation. Then he draws another sign down to the church, that of Emmanuel being born to a virgin. He talks about the virgin daughter of Zion or Israel in many places throughout the prophecies, referring to a church and, as Proverbs 31 shows, a chosen daughter of those daughters of the church. The church didn't have daughters, it just had mama until the breakup. Now it has daughters flung around the world. And God is going to choose one of those daughters. He is going to put upon her the term virgin of Israel or virgin of Zion. Now that doesn't mean that those are people who have been perfect from birth. It simply means that they are accounted worthy, their sins removed in one day, as Zechariah 3 says, and therefore they are accounted as virgins, even as Paul called the church at Corinth a virgin. And they were probably the most immoral church that there was at the time. But God had put that upon them since their sins were washed away in baptism and washed away ever after as we pray for repentance and forgiveness every day of our lives. Anyway, he says, I'll give you a sign. One of the daughters of the church will conceive and bring forth Emmanuel. And I cited the prophecy in Matthew where it says, you at the moment will call him Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua or whatever, in whatever language you choose. But they, it's a prophecy, will call his name Emmanuel. 
So at some time in the future, he says, one of the daughters will begin to use Emmanuel instead of Jesus or Yeshua or whatever. Now that knowledge came to us at the feast in 06. And he says, by the time that child could be uh, uh, gestated and born, and then would reach the time where it would be able to know truly good from evil, that this prophecy of Ephraim being destroyed would occur. So, we'll see as we go on through this, and the reason I go back and review this, partly to remind us, but partly to show that woven here in a prophecy is both the international scene and the church scene. And it will go back and forth between these as you go through it. So it's, it's like the two prophecies are moving together. Every one of them is not dual per se, but it will speak of the international scene, then it will speak of the church scene, and it will show how they mix together. And what happens between them. And that is important for us to understand. So he says, Ephraim's going to be torn, but there will be one of the daughters who will start saying Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us, not just God is salvation. I find it interesting that he says he will eat butter and honey so that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. I don't care what health book you read, if you get raw milk and uncooked honey, you have good food. And he was to eat those things that he might learn what is good. Now, there's another reference I had never picked up onto that until this morning in the same chapter about some more people. And we'll get to that in just a moment, but I wanted to mention it again before we get there to see the analogy and how it is repeated and why it is repeated. And it says that Ephraim the land that we abhor as it is in its present sinful condition, as Babylon the Great, will have both her kings forsaken by this time. Now, that's an interesting thought. It said that this land shall be forsaken of both her kings. I had taken that maybe lost or dead, killed. No, forsaken. That means they pull back from or depart from or spurn it, shun it. Now that fits with Jeremiah 50 or 51, whichever one it is, which says that our leader will give his hand. In other words, he will shake hands on a deal to sell us down the river. And I care not whether it's Democratic or Republican or Obama or Romney, or whoever. This is not a political statement against any one man. Whoever it is, I think, president and vice president, are going to turn their back on this nation and, and sell us down the river. It doesn't matter who gets in. There are some that say it's going to start happening before the election even gets here. And that's only, what, 39 days away or so. Well, I don't know about that, and we won't get into the politics of it. But within that 65 years, we will be forsaken 
of our leaders. The Eternal shall bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim parted from Judah. When the split occurred between the tribe of Judah and those two who stayed with her and the ten northern tribes. Even the king of Assyria. So, that's next. Or that's how it will happen, God says. Ephraim will be destroyed and it will be led by the king of Assyria. Now, he will have allies. It will be a coalition against America, as we shall see in many scriptures and have seen in the past. But it will be led by the Assyrian, or probably that would equate to the king of the north. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, or Mitzrayim, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. What were some of the plagues of Egypt? One was a fly, and uh, the Assyrians have had a bee in their bonnet for quite some time, having started two world wars already, and ready for a third. And they shall come, and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys, and in the holes of the rocks, and upon all the thorns, and upon all bushes. In other words, they'll be everywhere, all over the place, in the bushes, and the valleys, in the same day shall the Eternal shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. In other words, he says, I'm going to send the Assyrian whom I've hired for this job, and he is going to shave you from one end to the other. All the hair on your body from the head to your foot, including the beard. And the beard in those days was recognized as a symbol of a man. And it was very, very embarrassing to have your beard shaved. In fact, when David and his men had their beard shaved, they went and hid until they grew back out. Because they felt they looked like women without beards. I don't know whether we'll need to address that someday or not. We'll all get fuzz-faced. But uh, in any case, that was the culture of the day. And it may return. But he uses as an analogy about our land. It's going to be cut close, in other words. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. Well, that sounds nice and pastoral. But notice the context of what we are reading. It's talking about enemies at every turn and being shaved till there's no hair left. talks about our land, is it Jeremiah or Ezekiel? It talks about a people, uh, oh, how does it say it? Something in peeled. <laughs> uh, just like you had all the hair peeled off, scalped and peeled, or I, I can't say it exactly. But you get the picture. A young cow and two sheep, and it shall come to pass... For the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. Now it's said that Emmanuel, in this spiritual analogy, would eat butter and honey 
so that he might know good from evil. We're in a land today that does not know good from evil. So in the middle of all this destruction by the Assyrian and his armies and coalition, in the middle of the land becoming unproductive, it will still support a few animals. What is, what is coming designed to teach us? The difference between good and evil. Humility and meekness and willingness to follow the good rather than the evil. That's why the Assyrian is coming. That's why he's going to kill 90% of this nation. Is so that we might learn good from evil. Notice that as we continue the context here. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. The Napa Valley, where you had all those grapevines and wineries, will be briars and thorns. So it's not talking about the millennium where everybody has a cow and a couple of sheep. It's talking about a land devastated and no crops being grown and only each man having maybe a young cow and a couple of sheep to subsist on, and that's all. But he'll get butter and honey can even be produced by plants that are not domesticated plants. You don't have to get it from orange blossoms or alfalfa. You can get it from thorn bushes and weeds. So he's saying, the honey that's produced wild in the land, and a few animals, and you'll have butter and honey, that you might learn what is good, as opposed to what you have known in the past, that is evil. And virtually everything we eat in this land is evil. It is genetically modified, it is processed, it is ruined by so many, many different ways, by the chemicals they put on the land, the chemicals they treat the seeds with. It just goes on and on and on. How bad the stuff is. You can go in a grocery store and I would say 99% of what is there is truly inedible. You have to look in a convenience store to find anything that you ought to put in your mouth. And you have to search in a grocery store to find anything that isn't damaged. I mean, even a carrot out of the ground in the vegetable section has been raised in wrong conditions. And now it's coming out that at Whole Foods, 20 to 30 percent of the things they call organically organic have been genetically modified. That's in the news right now today. So we have learned evil. And food is only one area. Morals, government, economics, everything in this land is evil. That's why we're instructed to come out of her, my people. So he's going to destroy this country. And then people will learn that that was evil and God took it away. Now, let's start out with butter and wild honey and learn something. 
and milk. Uh, butter is a byproduct of milk. And the vines will be gone. Briars and thorns will replace them. With arrows and with bows shall men come here. So it's a military takeover, and it will devastate the land and devastate agriculture. Because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come here the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Won't be planting that which has been dug before and planted before. It's just going to be a place to send your cattle that they might eat and you barely get by. So it's a military and an agricultural destruction that is coming. Okay, and that's within 65 years from when this prophecy began here in the end time. Chapter 8. Moreover, in addition to this, he says, the Eternal said to me, Take you a great roll, a pretty big piece of parchment, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means spoil soon or pray come quickly, or make haste to the spoil, or pray. That's what that name means. And I took to me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. So God obviously had instructed Isaiah, I want you to have a child, and I want you to name him, this thing is coming quickly. The spoil will be here. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. Now this is different than the case where the virgin conceived in the beginning. That was not something Isaiah went to his wife and caused. That was a prophecy of a church that would begin to use the name Emmanuel. Here we have a child born of the prophetess. Maybe that tells you what a prophetess is in Bible language, uh, the wife of a prophet. Not someone who's ordained uh, apart from, but the wife of a prophet. So he went into her and caused this child to be produced. For before the child, I have knowledge to cry my father and my mother. Now, babies begin to say, Dada and Mama, a long time before they are old enough to know the difference between good and evil. So there's a fundamental difference between this child and its birth and the one that we read about at the beginning of chapters or the middle of chapter seven. <clears throat> this one is of imminent danger even more so than what he gave in his sign to the church, the virgin. This is a warning both to uh, the nation, and has ramifications for the church, as we'll see a little further down. Before this child is old enough to say, Daddy and Mommy, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now, Damascus was the capital of Syria at that time, still is to this day. And... Uh, Samaria represented the ten northern tribes led by Ephraim. 
So here it includes not just Ephraim, but those attendant to Ephraim. I would say that included Manasseh and Benjamin and the other tribes that we see in Western Europe and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand and so on as we understand the presence of Israel today. I think it's quite clear once you understand where the promised land is, right here, that God gave it to the people who are the children of Abraham. He said he would. So those he gave it to have to be the Israelites. Mr. Armstrong understood that a long time ago, and it's still the case. He also caused Herbert Armstrong to be the leader of the church in Israel at the end time. So I think it's pretty clear where the promised land has to be and who the Israelites are, and he was essentially correct in that, although I think he uh, reversed Ephraim and Manasseh, and perhaps there are other tribes that we don't fully understand who they are either, but we know basically it was the Anglo-Saxons and those who are akin to them. So, whether it be just the country of Syria with its capital at Damascus, or whether it may include other Arab peoples of Ishmael as well, uh, remains to be seen. But here, Samaria or Ephraim represents Samaria or the other ten tribes. So it is not something just on Ephraim, but on the others as well. The Eternal spoke also to me again, saying, For as much as this people refuse the waters of Shiloh that go softly, now, God works gently. God would work peaceably with his church and his people if we would respond to him. But we have gone our way, and he has had to become angry, and he has had to spew us out of his mouth as a whole church, including us as individuals. But he says he is going to begin to work with and we'll see that down here a little later, an element of that church to whom the remnant will eventually come. So it says, since his people have refused God and his gentle way of treating, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, that is, in Syria, and the leader of Ephraim who is, who is betraying Ephraim, that's where they put their hope and trust. We heard a great message about hope and change, did we not? And our nation is putting their hope in the leadership we have, not knowing that we are being betrayed every day by that leadership as we speak. People are beginning to wake up to that. But we haven't rejoiced in God, we have rejoiced in our own leaders. That is a mistake. Now, therefore, or as a result of that, behold, the Eternal brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. So he uses the armies of the king of Assyrian here as waters of a river in type. The water of a river can be a very powerful force as people in the floodplain soon learn. And even in Revelation 12, uh, it talks about how Satan will send a flood after the church when she uh, has to flee from the abomination of desolation. 
we've always said, well, that's an army. Uh, well, here's backup for that. God very directly here calls the army of the Assyrian a river of water strong, a flood. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So he's using the analogy here of Ephraim or Israel as a riverbed or a plain or a valley and how the Assyrian will come like a raging river and go up over the banks and out of the channel and it will be a flood over the whole land. And he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. Now this is a prophecy about Ephraim, is it not? Now even if you're still in the back of the drawer in terms of who Ephraim and Manasseh are, they are together as brothers in the Bible. So Ephraim and Manasseh, even in our original understanding and worldwide, were Great Britain and the United States. As we understand it today, the United States has to be Ephraim because it's the only place that fits all the analogies. Now that's a curiosity that he is, he is uh, attacking and coming into Ephraim but he crosses over Judah. Now that's strange. If Judah is in the Middle East, how can he come into Assyria and go so far as to overrun Judah? Hmm. Makes you wonder where Judah might really be. Just another thought as we get into this material about where is truly the promised land and where is Jerusalem. It's all through the Bible. Things that don't quite fit if you have Judah, the true Judah, being in the Middle East. It appears to be within the place that is being attacked here. He'll pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck. Interestingly, it uses that analogy here. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So this will reach to the true Judah, the true land of Emmanuel. Here again, he's speaking of the area the church will be in, because God with us, Emmanuel, will be with the church. The true church. The virgin daughter of the church the remnant of the church, wherever she may be. And it looks like it's within the land of Ephraim that is overrun the channels and the borders and the banks. Interestingly, I think that the area that I believe is Jerusalem and was Jerusalem does have two wings on one side that are recognizable as rough geological wings even from Google Earth and have a crease down between them like a neck. And if they come from the east and the north and overrun Judah even to the neck, it could mean even that spot. Now, whether that's right at the beginning of this destruction or later, I do not know, uh, when the abomination is set up, but it appears to be when this nation is taken. So it's not something where God just causes the area that was the original Judea to be left out of it, but it will also be overrun. 
I have wondered how the people that inhabit this area today generally would be gotten gone. And many of them, it appears, will disappear when the Assyrian comes into the land. It will not have to be with bees or volcanoes, but the Assyrian is the hired servant of God will come through the land that originally was Judah as well. Don't panic, however. Uh, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you will be safe. So he's going to go through the land of Emmanuel. Asso- uh, verse 9, Associate yourselves, O you people, and you shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all you of far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. No matter how much you prepare, no matter how much you gird your loins, no matter how many guns and ammo or ammunition you buy, it will do you no good. See, that's what the preparers are missing in our land today. They're hoping that this economic crash that they see coming and riots in the streets will go by fairly quickly and what gold and silver they can save and what food they can put in their hideaway is going to save them. But it won't. And not just this country, but ultimately there's going to be world war and wherever your bug out place might be, it isn't going to work for you unless you're in God's bug out place. And you better know where that is. If you still think it's Petra, you better get ready to go. It's coming soon. I don't believe it's Petra. Not for a moment. This isn't what the Bible says, but we'll get to that later. We've been there. So it doesn't matter how many alliances they might make with neighbors, friends, subdivisions, states, or whatever. It won't work. Verse 10, Take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. So they are going to want to destroy the church when they overrun the land of Judea as well. But God will not permit it, because Christ will be with us. says in Zechariah 2, He will come and dwell with the two witnesses and the remnant church. So it's in the midst of this international conflict, it draws it down again to the church and how it will be involved and that whatever they plan against us will come to nothing. That's encouraging, is it not? With all this conflagration that is going to be occurring, he says, whatever they plan against the church will come to nothing. What they plan against the nation will come to pass, but not the church, or not, not the chosen one daughter of the church. Others must come and attach themselves to it. And we read that in Isaiah 4 last week, that the seven daughters will come and attach themselves to the one man that God sets as the leader. Even of the two witnesses, one will be predominant. Zerubbabel. For the Eternal spoke this to me with a strong hand. In other words, he said it emphatically, strongly, and so that I would not have to worry, Isaiah says. But he's referring to us here at the end time. This is an end time prophecy. So he spoke it 
powerfully and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. I don't need to think like they think. What does this people think? They say, say you not a conspiracy to all, to all them to whom this people shall say a conspiracy. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. There's a lot of talk about a conspiracy today. And indeed, there is one. Psalm 83 calls it confederacy. Conspiracy is the same thing. Allies coming together for the purpose of destroying. That's what a confederacy or an alliance or a conspiracy is. So he says, don't worry about that. I think a lot of people in the church that know about it are sitting in fear and worrying about it. He says, don't. Now, I like to keep abreast of it to some degree to see how it's developing. As Christ said, you'll see the leaves on the trees coming. Be aware of that. So we need to be aware of it, but we don't need to fear it like they do. Sanctify the eternal of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He is the one who will either account us worthy to escape or not. If he says not, then we are in deep trouble. If he says, I will protect this one and account this one worthy, then we do not have anything to fear. So what we need to do now is fear God and keep His commandments so that He will account us worthy to escape all these things. If we are doing that, then we have nothing to fear. So fear Him who is able to make the decision. Now there He has to be talking to the church. Who else would He be talking to? He's not talking to all the citizens of L.A. or Philadelphia. They're not fearing God. They won't fear God. He says that through Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. They're not going to repent. They will have to be a people scattered and peeled. That's the word I was looking for. Scattered and peeled bald. This has to be referring to the church who has the knowledge to fear God. And it is the church who should not fear their fear. Now, if you're out in the world and you see the new world order coming, you better get scared and do whatever you can. But if you're in the church and you understand the truth about these things, don't fear. Trust God. Fear Him. Verse 14, He says what He will do. He shall be for a sanctuary for those who fear Him. A safe place, a refuge, a sanctuary. We'll see that that is Zion all through Scripture. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare, a trap, in other words, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is not currently inhabited as a city, but the church and the nation are still referred to by their capitals in prophecy at times, Judah with Jerusalem and uh, Samaria 
the other tribes of Israel, as we've already discussed even yet today. So both houses, Judah and Israel, And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Even of the holy people, it says in Daniel 11, uses almost the same words. This will occur too. So it's a danger for those in the church, and it's certainly a danger for those in the rest of the nation. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. So he's referring to whom? To the ministry here, who will lead in the knowledge of what is going on. There to teach fear of God, not teach fear of the conspiracy that is coming. And what they are to teach is God's testimony. What is his testimony? This book. We need to go through this whole book. And we've been doing that over the last 12 years, haven't we? 16, really. To see these things. So we're to bind this testimony up. What the Bible says. Seal the law among my disciples. End time prophecy. Sorry, the law isn't done away. We're to be emphasizing all the testimony of God in the Bible, and particularly then, or especially, or pointed out specifically, His law. Out of that book, or that whole testimony. And then Isaiah says, And I will wait upon the Eternal that hides His face from the house of Jacob. Now, He's hidden it from the whole nation, has He not? But in other scriptures, we've learned that he has hidden it also from the church. And Isaiah is addressing himself and the people with him when he says this right here. We'll see that. He hides his face from the house of Jacob, spiritual Israel in this case. And I will look for him. How many scriptures have we read where it says we are to seek him with our whole heart? We're to seek him as silver and gold. And Isaiah says, I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. So the whole context here is of the destruction of Ephraim, Syria, the tribes of Israel, God being a sanctuary for His church and those who will keep His testimony and His commandments. And Isaiah says that He and the children given Him are for signs and wonders from the God who dwells in Mount Zion. Now I can take you to Zechariah 2 where he says to flee from Babylon, to go to Zion... And there he will come and dwell with us. And then in Zechariah 3, speaking of the beginnings of the end time work, he says that the men given to Joshua, the leader in that case, that they are there for signs and wonders. uses the same language 
Now, Zechariah 1 through 6 are talking about the beginnings of the latter temple under the two witnesses and the remnant, same as the story in Haggai. And Isaiah is referring to the exact same thing here. Just as the world is coming apart and Ephraim is going to be destroyed, the latter temple will arise. And Isaiah is the type, again, and the people that were with him of this end-time prophecy, and there will be signs and wonders made that are there to show who God is. That is when he will be dwelling in Mount Zion with his people, as Zechariah, and the context is clearly the end-time church and the two witnesses. It all happens right here. This is what this is talking about. Then there's a warning. When they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, to wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek their God for the living to the dead? Why would the living who know God seek to the dead? Why would we go to the Protestant preachers on talk radio or some of those idiots who think that there are half demon, half people out there? Why should we go to the demons and the wizards that peep and mutter for clarity when we have the Word of God? Sometimes it's almost beyond me. I was told to read the book of Enoch. Assuming that that book of Enoch that has come down today is an original by God's man Enoch before the flood, and that it's been translated correctly, and that is the assumption that is being made. But Enoch, or at least the book of Enoch as we know it, where it's the same thing or not, I have no clue, and I doubt that the prophet Enoch wrote that one that is available today. Because on page 7, it says that demons cohabited with women and produced children that were 450 feet tall. That's three and a, or it was one and a half football fields. 450 feet tall. Now we're talking about the women of men here. Understand, if you figure this out proportionally, I'm taking a little time on this because it's a big deal on talk radio and on some websites and even among some of God's people. The Genesis 6 is to be interpreted as demons marrying women. Doesn't fit the Bible at all. <clears throat> Figure it out proportionally. I kind of did it just for giggles. A modern woman could stand under the big toenail of this individual, 450 feet tall, for shade. His fingers would be about 12 feet long. His feet, 62 feet long, to hold him up. Now, a human baby is about 20, 21 inches long when it is born. 
using the rough proportions given here, this baby would be born 20 feet long. Any volunteers, ladies? Six, seven, eight pounds is plenty, isn't it? This is ludicrous. Now, I'll submit to you that God is a God of love, compassion, and mercy. And I brought up that scripture where Christ said that the angels in heaven are not like people, and they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And you know what the dodge I got on that was? Well, these didn't get ma- they didn't marry the women. They just cohabited with them and had children that are half demon and half man. Now, do you for one moment think that a God of love and fairness would create millions, maybe billions, who knows how many angels, with the equipment and the desire to cohabit and then tell them you're going to live forever as created and you will never have a chance to cohabit. Even though you have great desires to do such and the equipment wherewithal to do such. That would not be a good way to live forevermore. I don't think God would have created beings whom he says do not marry nor are given in marriage. I think they are incapable of cohabitation from their creation. And then one-third rebelled against God and left. And the answer to that was, well, they left their first estate. Okay, their first estate was righteous. Then they became unrighteous and evil. That's how they left their first estate. Does that mean they suddenly grew organs they'd never had? How ridiculous and stupid can it get? The Bible does not talk of such. What does God warn us of? He warns us of Satan and demons. Now, if there was a bigger threat to us than that, don't you think God would tell us about it? Huh? The Bible talks about giants in the land. Yes, it does. And they found skeletons of them in this land, and I'll prove that to you soon. But the, skeleton, the giants that God talks about were like Goliath, nine and a half feet. Og, king of Bashan, was singled out as one of the larger ones, and his bed was thirteen and a half feet long. And that's the biggest one the Bible mentions. Now, they have found skeletons, apparently, that are fourteen to even seventeen feet tall, so there could have been some that tall. But four hundred fifty? I don't think so. Totally incapable of cohabiting with women. If they're half human, what do they have, one lung? What what happens when they get out of the atmosphere? Does one lung collapse? 
There's some really stupid stuff going around, brethren. Let's understand it. It's been promulgated around here. And it's wrong. This warning in verse 19 includes this and a lot of other things. They're not following the testimony of the book. Yes, it talks about giants nine to thirteen and a half feet tall. So, well, we looked like grasshoppers to them when they went into the promised land. You know what? I feel like a grasshopper when I'm in the presence of somebody just seven feet tall. I had a guy six nine. I kind of resented him in college in a way because I was student body president by a you know, and he came up one day and looked down and patted me on the head and said, "How are you doing, little man?" And he could. Because by comparison to him, I was a little bitty man. And I felt like a grasshopper. What if he'd have been nine feet tall? What if he'd have been thirteen and a half feet tall? Yeah, I'd have felt like a grasshopper. It's, it's merely an allegory. It, it's not truly the same dimensions. That's all Caleb and Joshua, and especially those ten who were with them, were saying. We're in their sight like grasshoppers. Out of the way. All right, if they want to push that, can something grasshopper size cohabit with something 12, 13 feet tall? I don't think so. The story is just so full of holes, brethren. I didn't mean to get off on that, but this verse 19 right here in the middle of this context I think is important. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Bible gives us all we need to know about giants. And it shows their dimensions, among other things. Now I want to turn back to 1 John 4, 6 here, because I think there's something very important we need to grasp. Maybe we understand it, but I think some do not. 1 John 4, verse 6. This is John the Apostle speaking, and those who would follow him in the truth and the testimony and the word of God. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God has called out some to preach the truth. If they have not been given the truth, they have the spirit of error. And we know by comparing what this book says to what others say, whether they are of God or not. And we just read how with this testimony and this book and his laws are what we go by. Now, let's back that up just a little more in 2 John 10. Well, let's go to verse 6. This is love, that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in. God's commandments are what love is. 
They define God and his love. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Christ is coming in the flesh, that is, dwelling in us as human beings. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, there were all kinds of antichrists, and there are all kinds today. Look to yourselves. In other words, here he says, pay attention that we lose not those things which we have worked, but that we receive a full reward. He knew there was a falling away coming. He had seen most of it by the time he wrote this in the late 90s before his death. And he said, we're in danger of losing what we knew. And the whole church has gone through that. And now we only have a small amount of the original church left. And many are departing from the truth. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. Now, what does that mean? The things Christ said, and he did say on this side issue, that in the second resurrection they'll be like the angels of heaven, and neither marry nor given in marriage. In other words, they can't cohabit and get married. That's what he says. If there come any to you, and bring not this doctrine, this book, its words, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Now, he has just told us that we are to keep the commandments all through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, if somebody is a preacher, man, woman, or whatever, and they believe the law is done away with, they don't believe the words of God, we are not to receive them into our house. The whole Protestant world believes the law of God is done away with. And yet sometimes we persist because they're talking about love or they're talking about something good. Some of us will even yet listen to Protestant preachers. We will listen to Protestant women preachers, in spite of what God says all through the Bible about men being the leaders and what is said in New Testament. And I read a paper not too long ago, somebody left in my box, about how women should be preaching and perhaps ordained, and on and on and on it went. And it is twisted, it is taken out of context, things are read into it, it was garbage. It does not fit the context or the whole flow of the Bible in any way. Now God is telling us through the Apostle John, if there's anybody that comes and has anything different than the commandments of God, and the things written in this testimony, we are not to hear them. We are not to listen to them. The television and the radio bring them into your house just as much as them walking in the front door. And into your car radio and your tape or your CD player as well. What he's saying is don't listen to them and don't let them into your spiritual house. 
or your physical house, but your mind is your spiritual house. And that's the truly important one. God does not work through Protestant preachers or Catholic priests or Buddhists or Hindus or Shintoists or anybody except those whom He has ordained to preach this Word. Now, I don't know who listens to them. I've heard that some do. I did not ask who. I don't even want to know. I just want us all to know what God says. I don't care how sweet they may sound and how they might talk about love. They don't know what love is. They may know emotion, but if they don't know the commandments and they don't keep the commandments of God, they do not have the love of God. John makes that very, very plain. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. What's grievous about loving God? What's grievous about loving your neighbor as yourself and not breaking those ten? There's nothing grievous about that. It goes against human nature but it creates love and peace and happiness and unity. And when we break those commandments and don't treat our neighbor as ourselves, then we are creating disunity and disharmony and division and war. Now with that side issue, let us go back to Isaiah, because I do not believe it's a side issue. In truth, I believe God put it in this context on purpose. Because they might not be going to somebody with a uh, crystal ball and that literally peep and mutter. There are those beings around and there are people who do that. But understand, if you don't have God's Spirit, truly, and you have something known as a Holy Ghost, or whatever, and you don't keep God's commandments, you are not a Christian. And if you obey Satan, who hates God's laws, and everybody who goes to the Methodist, or Baptist, or Church of Christ, or Pentecostal, or whatever group they go, evangelical, whatever group they go to, worship their father, the devil. Do we get that? Christ told the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were the children of Abraham, who thought they worshipped the true God, that they worshipped their father, the devil. That has not changed. There are people who think they worship the true God and they don't even know him. And all these people on talk radio who are preaching religion and prophecy do not know the true God. Why would we listen to them? He said, don't do it. He said, fear me. 
and bind up my testimony and my law in my disciples. We're to fear Him, not them. I'm not worried about Nephilim coming from outer space with one lung, 450 feet tall, to persecute me. I am concerned about God and Him protecting me so that I don't worry about Satan and his demons coming after me. Isn't that bad enough? How could something that's half human be worse than something that's all demon? Give me a break here. All Satan has got to be something worse than something half human. Human can be bad enough, but Satan and his demons are a whole lot worse. Let us not be led astray. Let us listen to God. He tells us how big giants were. He tells us they were human. And there are skeletons of people that tall right here in this land. There are none in the Middle East that they've found. Why should a people not seek to their God instead of those who are spiritually dead? And then he says it again. Six, verse 16 was not enough. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We're reading right here in Isaiah 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, exactly what is going to happen. We don't have to worry about a confederacy we know who's going to lead it, and we're going to see as we go on here how it's going to get stopped. So if they don't have this word that we're reading today, there is no light in them. It's darkness. <clears throat> and they shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. People who do not have this word that we're reading are going to be marching on, and when all of this comes down on them, they're going to become bitter and angry, frustrated, and curse God. If they're church members, they may curse the true God. If they're not church members, they'll curse whatever God it is they worship, Satan. And they shall look to the earth. And behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So they're going to look up and say, there's no help from above, and curse and swear at God. And then they're going to look to the earth and say, maybe there's an answer here. And the Assyrian will drive them into darkness. Really, I've spoken long enough. I intended to get further along than this, but uh, some of this needed expounded. Some of it needed explained as it really is and where we really need to be and what we need to be listening to and what we should not be listening to. So I will not apologize for that. I just apologize to me for not getting as far as I wanted to. But uh, we'll stop there and 
I look forward with great anticipation to the Feast of Tabernacles beginning, in terms of services at least, Monday morning at 11 at Jerusalem.